that music um, that I kind of caught the last couple songs, we have this amazing God. Isn't God amazing? Right? He is amazing. Now the thing about the Lord is He's so amazing that we can trust Him to follow through in giving us the strength and power and authority to accomplish anything that He calls us to do in this world. How do I know that? Well, He demonstrated that in several ways. The, the first way and most memorable way in my own life is through the forgiveness of sin that I received when placing my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That is something that is impossible for me to accomplish on my own. Something, in fact, before I met Jesus, I didn't want to accomplish. I had my back turned against my Creator. I wanted to live my own life, and I wanted to live it my own way. I had no desire uh, for God and His will, and no love for Him in my heart. That same God broke through my hard heart and my life of sin, and brought into it light provided by Jesus who died on the cross, was buried in the ground, and on the third day, resurrected from the dead. That is the God who does every impossible thing. For Him, there is nothing impossible. There is nothing impossible for God. Ready? Say it with me. There's nothing impossible for God. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know what kind of step of faith God is going to call you to make today, but I think you just need to hear this morning, church, you just need to hear that there is nothing impossible for God. And so whatever God lays on your heart today through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the Word of God is preached, whatever you hear today from Him, whatever step of faith He calls you to take, you can accomplish that step of faith through the power of God. Nothing is impossible for God. Our struggle, church, our struggle is that we don't like to be all in with God, right? God draws a line in the sand, and that's what we're talking about today and over the next few weeks, this line in the sand that God draws in our hearts and in this world. God draws a line in the sand. Too often, we don't we don't want to be all in. So let's say this is all in, right? This is us following the Word, loving God, serving Him with reckless abandon, right? This is, this is that life. And then on the other side is living in accordance with the world, which is oftentimes easier, more popular, may even be more appealing at times. So we as believers, we know that we don't want to live here, right? We don't want to live here. But we're not always ready to take the step of faith and live here. So where do we live? We live here. We live here, right? On this beam, trying to follow God's will and, and not fall off and, and live here. Always trying to balance. I wonder if any of our kids could do this better than me. Anybody want to give it a try? You guys want to try? Karis, come on. Any kids out? Any other kids? I don't see any back there. You want to try? No? Okay. Karis is the only break. Let's see if you can get across this balance beam. Look at that. 
Yeah. Thank you. Well done. Karis obviously has much practice and is very good at this. But Karis, how would you like it if you had to walk everywhere on this balance beam? Would you like that? Would you like this? Karis, you're going to need to go to your room and get your laundry. Karis, you need to go outside and clean up after the dog. Karis, it's time to walk to school. Would you like to live your life on that balance beam? Church, why do we do that? Why do we live our lives on this thing? Why are we not either all in with Jesus or out? Because that's what Jesus calls us to be. We're either all in, sold out to him, walking in accordance with his word by faith, or we're not. That's what the text that we're going to look at today is all about. So, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. The words will be on the screen as well. Acts chapter 7. We are going to walk through a pretty significant amount of Scripture today. So I want you to just kind of bear with me. This isn't a norm for us, but the reason is because Acts chapter 7 verses 1 through 53 are the sum whole of Stephen's testimony in front of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. And so we couldn't really break that up. So we're going to look at that all together. What's happened is one of the, one of the first servants or deacons of the church named Stephen has been telling people about Jesus. He's been performing signs and miracles to draw people to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The religious leaders didn't like that. So they, they the, the crowds of, of leaders brought Stephen in front of this group of 70 plus one uh, Jewish religious leaders who kind of ran the show in Jerusalem. So they've got Stephen in front of this group of leaders, and he's, he's been put in front of them standing while all of them are seated, and he's now going to be put on trial for what he's been preaching about Jesus. This is the scene. What's going to happen here is Stephen is going to offer a defense for what he's been teaching and preaching. And I know my brother Gary is going to love this as a lawyer. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of scripture, and I think he'll especially love it. You can talk to him about it later. So Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Stephen is going to give a defense for the gospel. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 say, are these things true? This is probably Caiaphas, who's the high priest of the time. The high priest asked, Brothers and fathers, this is Stephen talking now. He replied, Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. So Caiaphas begins the formal proceedings. They've already laid out these charges in front of Stephen. And now Caiaphas asks him, all right, Stephen, these things that, that they've laid out in front of you, are they true? Stephen begins his defense showing proper respect for the religious leaders and focuses his attention on the God of glory, whom he calls God, of course, which means that he isn't really trying to lead people away from God's original plan and God's original covenant with Abraham. Stephen's desire is to show the people, going way back to the beginning of their covenant with God, which began with a man named Abram, who became Abraham, and then went through various leaders 
like Moses. What Stephen is going to do, he's going to go way back to the beginning. He's going to demonstrate that he is a lover and follower of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. That he trusts and believes in the word of God. But that that word and promise from God has been fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. So that's what Stephen's going to do. So Stephen's desire is to show the people that by following their God, Yahweh, the God of what we now know as the Old Testament, the true and proper way of following him is fulfilled in receiving Jesus as the Messiah. So he goes way back to the beginning to a man named Abraham. Verse 4 continues. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him uh, move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way, his descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they, would ens- and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation, and they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So, Stephen isn't saying anything that these religious leaders didn't already know and believe and accept. While God brought Abraham to the promised land, Abraham would not actually own any of it. God's promise would be fulfilled in Abraham's offspring. This is what Stephen is saying. Stephen points out that Israel is now living in the land promised to Abraham, which means that God fulfilled his promise to the Jews. Stephen's recounting of God's faithfulness illustrates his love and worship of God. What he's trying to do, he's trying to show these religious leaders, I also love and obey God. We believe the same thing. What he's trying to show them is he's not a blasphemer. Next, Stephen summarizes Israel's sojourn in a place called Egypt, during which time the Egyptians enslaved them But God did not leave them in Egypt, did he? He proved faithful once again by judging the Egyptians for their sins against Israel, delivering Israel to the promised land and keeping his promise to them. The sign of God's covenantal relationship with Israel was circumcision, which predated the giving of the law, primarily the Ten Commandments, to the Israelites, and it was a fundamental act of worship which reminded them of their special relationship with God. So what Stephen's showing so far is that he believes and follows the same God that these religious leaders follow, Yahweh. He's also showed them that he submits to God's authority. He submits to the law. He submits to circumcision. He submits to what God has called them as a people to do and has faith in God as the one that fulfills his promises. Stephen recounts the most important parts of Israel's history as a people of God in a positive light and tells the council that he believes what they believe. And their covenant with God is his covenant with God, that he's not a blasphemer. 
Remember, that was one, the, the single biggest charge against Stephen was that he was blaspheming or lying about Yahweh. Next, Stephen goes into detail about what God's continual redemptive work is among the Israelites in verse 9. He says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and their ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So Abraham's grandson, this man named Jacob, fathered 12 sons. They were later known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel, and he had 12 sons, and these 12 sons fathered the nation of Israel. Jacob's sons, however, were jealous of one particular son named Joseph. Joseph was called and given a special purpose by God to be used by him in a special way. The brothers didn't like this. So they took Joseph out one day, met him out in the wilderness area, and they sold him to traders who were passing by. They sold him into slavery. He ended up in a land of Egypt. When there, because he was a follower of God and called by God to have a special purpose, he ended up growing in his opportunities to serve and to have leadership in Egypt. And finally, he became the second man in command in all of Egypt. So what is Stephen saying here? Something that I already know. God called a great man named Joseph. Joseph was faithful to God even when he was in prison. That same one called by God was rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery. But God still used him in a mighty way. And in fact, ultimately, Joseph would save his whole family through the power of God. Now he's going to continue in verse 17. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. Until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and his actions. So as Joseph's family continued to live in Egypt and multiply and grow stronger, that Pharaoh died, and, and a later Pharaoh saw that the, the Israelites, the Jews, were becoming very powerful and, and numerically large, and so he was worried about that, so he put them into slavery. So during that 400 years, those people served in slavery to Egypt. But God hadn't forgot about the, Egypt, or about the Israelites. 
and he sent a baby named Moses. At that time, all babies were supposed to be put to death, but Moses was not put to death. He was hidden by his mother. He was sent out in the water in a basket, and ultimately Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him in the Pharaoh's household. So God not only sent Moses to save his people from slavery in Egypt, the Egyptians paid to educate him and raise him up and teach him how to be a leader. That's pretty amazing. Only God could do that, right? Right? (laughs) It's funny. Anybody catch the irony of that? You're not only going to not kill my leader, you're going to raise him in your own house. You're going to use your own resources to educate and feed and provide for him. And then when the time comes, he's going to take all my people out and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Okay, I thought maybe you'd laugh more. That's funny. Maybe later. I got a brother over here who gets it. Thank you very much. I'm just giving you all a hard time. You'll get it later. All right, let's continue on in the text. Verse 23. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating the neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. So at the age of 40, God stirs Moses' heart. Moses knows that he's an Israelite. He knows he's a Jew. He knows that the people enslaved are his people. He's a part of them. So God stirs his heart. He goes out among his people and he sees an injustice done. One of his brothers is is being beaten by an Egyptian uh, slave master and he kills him. The next day he finds two of his fellow Jewish brothers arguing and steps in to tell him like, why are you guys arguing? We're, We're one people. They essentially say, who are you to tell us what to do? Are you going to kill us? They're making, in that question, an accusation against Moses to actually go and tell the leadership what Moses did the day before. Moses is rejected by them, and he flees for his own life. All right, verse 30 continues. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness on Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and dare not look. The Lord said to him, Take off your sandals for your feet, from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. God has not forgotten about his promise to his people. They've been enslaved for 400 years. I bet they had long forgotten what God promised for them. And yet God has not forgotten. 
When the time is right, God approaches Moses, who had already been rejected by some of the Israelites. And he sends them, sends him to them to take them out of Egypt. Moses would be God's instrument to free the Israelites, even though they had already rejected him once in the past. So far, what's happened in this speech? Remember, Stephen is standing before the rulers and the judges. He's standing before the leaders of Israel, giving a defense for an accusation of blasphemy. He's explained how God sent two men to Israel, and both men were originally rejected by the people, right? Joseph, rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery. Moses, rejected by his brethren, fled to Midian. God's pathway of redemption isn't always easy. That's what we see in this part of the text. The promise is, however, that he will never leave you or forsake you as you follow him on the path of righteousness. That means he follows and walks with us through the good times and the bad times, through the hills and the valleys, through life and death. Israel had a history, as Stephen's going to point out, of rejecting the ones whom God sends to her. You, my friend, as you go out fulfilling God's great commission and telling people about Jesus, will receive your fair amount of rejection. If you haven't engaged in evangelism yet, if you commit to doing that, you too will see and feel the same rejection that Joseph and Moses both felt as they led the Israelites. But God gives you and me the same promise that he gave to his people Israel. It's, it's clearly expressed in Deuteronomy 31.6. He says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For the Lord your God is one who will go with you. He will go with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. So wherever God has called you to go, he'll be with you. And it's not just for a period of time. Jesus said, I'll be with you how long? Always. Until when? The end of the age. That same Savior will never leave you or forsake you as you walk the path of righteousness, as you take steps of faith that no one else is willing to take, as you stand on the platform in this culture and proclaim the gospel, Jesus proclaims it with you. As you speak the words of truth and tell people about Jesus, you'll be uttering the words from God empowered by the Holy Spirit. He will give you the words to say. He will give you the authority and the power to proclaim the truth of God's word. You're never, ever doing that alone. And when you take a stand of faith, or take a stand by faith, you stand with Jesus. So don't ever give up. No matter how many times that friend or family member or neighbor says no, don't stop praying. Don't stop trying. Don't stop telling them about the love that God has for them. Do you know why? Because one day they may say yes. Because one day they may say yes to Jesus. All right, Stephen's going to continue. What he's going to show them now 
is how Israel had this tendency of rejecting the ones that God sends to them. Do you see how this is brilliant, Gary? Do you see what he's doing here? It's brilliant. Ben Witherington sums up the first part of Stephen's speech. He says, God faithfully sends leaders to the nation and Israel consistently rejects them. All right, let's continue on. Let's look at verses 35 to 37. Stephen's still talking. He's still delivering this speech, this defense in front of the leaders. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you ruler and judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So even though Moses was initially rejected by those two men who were fighting, and even though throughout their journey of 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, Moses was time after time after time rejected by the Israelites. Do you know what didn't change throughout that whole time? The thing that didn't change is that he was God's man to lead Israel. It was indiscriminate of whether they wanted to receive him or not. Their reception of him didn't qualify him to be the leader. What qualified Moses to lead the people, even though they continually rejected him, was that God appointed him to be the leader of those people. What we learn here is the the one whom God calls is the one whom God uses to redeem his people. First, Joseph, called by God, rejected by his brothers, ultimately saved his whole family. And then Moses, called by God, rejected by those two men, and then continually over time rejected by Israel, the same one who saved all of his people. They were both God's appointed men to save God's people. They were God's chosen instruments of salvation. Stephen is brilliantly building a case for Jesus to be the Messiah. Listen to what he says. You probably maybe just like flipped over this part, or maybe I didn't read this verse, verse 37. I don't think I read it to you yet. So he talks about Moses and what Moses did in, in saving the people. And then he, he says in verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Listen carefully, ready? God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. So Stephen now is not just defending his belief about God and Israel's history. Now Stephen's building a foundation for Jesus as the Messiah. First quoting Moses, who said, God's going to send someone like me to lead this nation. God will raise up a prophet. God will raise up someone like Moses who will be a redeemer and provide salvation for Israel. And at that time, as Moses stood in front of the people, they received what they believed and interpreted what Moses said as a messianic prophecy. This was something they believed applied to the coming Messiah. So what's Stephen doing? He's applying what Moses said to the Messiah, which is what they believe, only he's saying the Messiah to whom this is applied is Jesus. Do you, re- do you remember the original charges 
that the crowd brought against Stephen? We find that in verse 11. They said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And what has Stephen done in his defense? He's carefully used the Bible, the word of God, and Moses' own words in the word of God to clarify his respect for Moses, for the law, and also now as a witness to show the council that Jesus is the Messiah. All right, let's go on, verse 38. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were, willing, were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So while Israel was wandering in the wilderness, after they had escaped slavery from Egypt, if you read through the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, you'll read about them always kind of wanting to go back to Egypt, always wanting to go back to slavery because they had better food there, because uh, they had safety there, because they didn't have to wander around there. So now uh, what Stephen's doing is he's talking about how they were unwilling to obey God through Moses, verse 40. They told Aaron, Moses' brother, make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away from them and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, so I will send you into exile in beyond Babylon." So Moses was a prophet of God, sent by God to lead the people and to receive the law on Mount Sinai. That was obvious and accepted by all the Jews, especially those who Stephen was talking to at this time. Yet at that time, the Israelites refused to obey him and follow God. Instead, they turned away from Yahweh, the one true God, and worshipped idols. And God allowed them to live in their sin Actually, until Moses intervened on their behalf. Just like he had done at other times when Israel had done the same thing. What Stephen is now doing at this point in his defense is he's trying to show the council that Israel had a habit, a long-term behavioral pattern of rejecting God's leaders. Of rejecting the ones that God sent to them to provide truth, and to help them walk with the one true God, with Yahweh. All right, let's continue on, verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded them to make it according to the pattern we have seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that, drove, that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will, you, what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? So now, 
what Stephen does is he turns to the second accusation made against him. Not just blasphemy, but now the other accusation was he keeps speaking against this temple. So we got to go back just kind of a hair back to a couple of sermons ago, which I'm sure you all remember perfectly. If not, I'll remind you. One of the things that Stephen said to the people and one of the things that he accused him of was speaking against the temple. In fact, saying that the temple would be destroyed. They are no doubt probably quoting Stephen, who was quoting something that Jesus said while he stood on the steps of that temple and they asked, isn't this such a beautiful place? And Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this and raise it back up on the third day. Well, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, was he? Jesus was talking about himself. That he would go down into death and be raised to life on the third day. And this is probably what Stephen was talking about in, through Jesus' resurrection, which they interpreted to be Stephen talking about the temple being destroyed. Now, Stephen addresses that issue, and he takes it to a whole other level. Stephen really could care less about whether the temple remains standing or whether the temple remains, or whether the temple is destroyed. Why doesn't he care about that? Because Jesus came and now provides an opportunity for us to worship God in all places. We no longer need to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God because God's Spirit lives within us. Very similar to what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well. This is what Stephen's trying to teach them. Really, I could care less about the temple. It's a great place to gather and preach the word and worship God. But really, the gospel is for the world, and, and people all over the world are going to be worshiping God. They're not going to come here anymore. Well, they took, they had a problem with that. They didn't like that. But this is what Stephen is trying to teach them. And so he uses Old Testament scripture to show them that the temple at this time really is insignificant. The text says, heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. He made all things. They no longer need the temple. The essence of Stephen's defense thus far is to show the council that the basic tenets of their beliefs in God are identical. That, that what the council believes, what the Sanhedrin believes about God, Stephen also believes about God. Notice that in Stephen's speech here, in his defense, nobody's arguing against him about what he's saying. They are, I think, in agreement with him. He's not uttered one single blasphemous thing about God, about the law, or about the temple. While this defense clearly proclaimed his worship of God, his belief in the law, and his participation in temple worship, Stephen also pointed something else out. And he's going to sort of grab this string and he's going to start to pull it. What he pointed out, the seed that he laid in their minds, is Israel, as a people, we have a tendency of rejecting God's leaders, God's prophets. We kind of have this tendency, as you saw in the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, we don't always do real well with the ones that God sends to lead us. The next three verses, as we close, these are the pinnacle 
of Stephen's defense. And it's, it's actually pretty funny. He now turns the tables against the Sanhedrin. The next three verses, in the next three verses, Stephen is no longer offering a defense about what he said in the past. Now he's become the prosecution. Now he's going to tell them what they've done wrong and what they need to do to repent. Up to this point, I feel compelled to sort of lay out in front of you as a church and maybe as a visitor here if you don't, do not yet follow Jesus. I just want to challenge you in your walk with the Lord. First, have you had that opportunity to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? That's the first step in our walk with the Lord. Are you rebelling against that? Now, your rebellion may not be outright verbal rebellion. Maybe in your heart, you're just saying, I'm really not ready yet. I don't really want to give up my life over here because I know what God wants me to do. I know that I need to be over here, and I don't want to do that yet. I want to be here or maybe here. Let me compel you to repent and trust in the Lord. First, in being born again and becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And second, now, as uh, a church, as believers, let me compel you not to be like Israel and, and to live life on this balance beam, but instead to take a step of faith into the life that God has called you to walk. I, I get it. I know that is, that is a big step. I know that that comes with big, tremendous sacrifice. But God will be with you. God will not leave you. God will give you the power to accomplish the things that he's called you to do with your life. Whatever it is that God has called you to walk toward or walk away from, he will be with you and he will help you to do that. Let's not be like Israel in these examples here. Let's, let's follow him and let's be faithful like Stephen. All right, let me just like wrap all this up as Stephen has now turn from his defense to the prosecution. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. Woo! That, that is not the softest gospel invitation, right? During invitation time, how do you guys, would you guys like it if I just like laid that out? Sometimes we need that. Well, that's what they needed, right? And what's funny is Stephen's quoting things that God said to the Israelites in Exodus. God called them a stiff-necked people. It was very common when they were in sin against him. So now Stephen stands completely and totally empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember, his face is glowing like an angel. In front of these 70, these 70 most powerful people in Israel. And he calls them a bunch of stiff-necked people. Y'all better stop rejecting God. Y'all turn from your sin. Y'all trust in Jesus. This is what Stephen says to them. These are the words that found Stephen in his grave. 
These are the words that compelled the people to stone him. But Stephen is unafraid. He is not afraid because he's standing for Jesus. All right, the next part of his text. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of the angels, and yet you have not kept it. Here's a brilliant part of Stephen's defense. Everything he just said, he wraps up at the end with a nice bow. Moses, Joseph, the law, everything God gave to us in the Old Testament, all of that foretold this moment right here when God sent his final Savior, Jesus. He says, stop being a stiff-necked people. Stop seeking to murder and kill. Stop seeking to turn away from the truth that God has sent before you. Before you on this day, says Stephen, lies an opportunity for you to receive God's Savior. And his name is Jesus. So next week we'll dive into what they did and how they responded to Stephen's defense and prosecution. But how does all of this apply to us? I mean, that was 53 verses of Scripture. That was a lot. How does it apply to us? I remember when um, Darlene and I hadn't had kids yet. We were in the ministry full-time. She was working full-time. But we were, man, we were sold out. We were, if we weren't working, uh, she wasn't at her, her secular job, and I wasn't you know, in, the, in the office at the church. We were doing ministry out in the community. We were busy. We were always doing something all the time. Well, then along comes Alethea, and life changed a little bit, right? We had a season of life with no kids, and then when Alethea came and, and the rest of the kids started to come, I recognized that, you know, I can't really give myself to the, the work of the church as much as I used to because I have a responsibility now to raise up children. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So a new season of life began for me, and I had to make changes, and I did. What Stephen is trying to tell the Israelites is a new season of God's grace and blessing is upon us, right? So Stephen says this after thousands of people had been saved and followed Jesus, right? He's trying to show them, like, there's a new age. It, it, it sort of was demonstrated and began at Pentecost when Peter stood up and preached that sermon. Thousands were saved and baptized, and later thousands more were saved and baptized. The church is growing. This is a new season, a new age in our walk with God. And the religious leaders and teachers were, were confronted with this opportunity to step into this season that they had waited so long for. For you, maybe the season and the change for you now in this moment is, is for you to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we're going to have in just a minute a time of invitation. Our team's going to come up here. And you'll have an opportunity to come down front, and I'm going to pray with you and, and show you how you can walk with Jesus. But church, we have an opportunity as well. 
I think, I believe that, that God desires for Fifth Street Baptist Church to do amazing things here. He desires for us to stand on a platform and preach and teach the gospel, to impact the keys for his glory and for the kingdom. But like the, the religious leaders, we've got to give the control of that over to him. Right? Like they had trouble receiving Jesus as the, the Messiah because he didn't look or act like the Messiah they expected to see, right? He was different. It wasn't who they thought he was. And for that reason, they rejected him. Now, as a church, God's called us to walk this path, a glorious path, to be used by him in mighty ways. And we have been used by him in mighty ways. We've, we've enjoyed a season of growth here and seen people saved and New people come into the church, and we're in a good place, really a good place. But I think when I read that text, what I'm challenged by, what I felt the Holy Spirit challenging me to do, and what I want to challenge you to do is, are you willing to just lay your preconceived notions? Are you willing to lay down the way that you think things should be collectively for us to seek the will of the Lord and to do what he's called us to do? Because I don't think until we do that as a body, we're going to see what God's got planned. We're going to maximize the fruitfulness of what he desires to do among us. So the call during this time of invitation, first is for the lost to be saved. For those of you in this room that do not yet know Jesus, come forward in just a minute when we all stand up. I'm going to pray with you. And I'm going to show you how to follow Jesus. For those of you that are Christians already, what is that calling that God's placed on your heart? Maybe to join this church. Maybe to be baptized. If you're already a part of our church, maybe the, 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 the call upon your life is just say, you know what, God? I'm going to do what you've called us as a church to do. I'm going to lay aside my own desires, my own preconceived notions, my own comfort. I'm going to just lay all those down. And we as a body, we're just going to do what you've called us to do. Now you can respond to that at your seat. You can respond to that up here at the altar. But this is for us a moment of decision. A moment to respond to what God's laid on our hearts. Would you all stand with me?